Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast, your favorite podcast about occult matters. My name is Rudolf, I am your host and I'm speaking to you from the outskirts of lovely old Vienna, Austria's beautiful capital. And it is my pleasure to have you back here for episode 3 of season 9. First, my apologies for last week. I had to cancel that episode last week. Well, you know, sometimes in the life of a podcaster, real life takes over. And even for someone who me, who like me, likes to do the shows as regularly as possible, that sometimes happens. So forgive me. And I'm sure we will enjoy together today's show where I will welcome Reed Wildemuth. And we are going to spoke about a rather political matter about uh, paganism and its relation to, well, occult activism, you might call it politics, you might call it ideology, you might call it. I think it's a bit of all of those. Let's speak to read to clear that, right? So um, again, a little new f- and touch to this episode, as I like to do it from time to time to have people who are talking about the occult, but from a different angle. I am happy that you are here back on the show to listen to this episode. And I welcome all of you who are here for the very first time. It's great to have you. Uh, great that you discovered the show. And to those of you who are new, to those of you who are regular listeners here, I say do go on the website on thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. This is now the 141st episode that will be available constantly on that website. You can listen to all other 140 episodes before this one. And uh, it's an awful lot of information. Some people like Carl Abrahamson say it's become an encyclopedia. Well, thank you, Carl. That's very kind of you to say. And I'm glad that uh, some people feel it like that. So don't miss out on that. And while you're on the website, you have other options. You can also leave me a feedback. I love feedback. So if you want to give me feedback, you have, of course, Facebook and Twitter and the regular things that are there. But you can send me an email at info at thoughthermes.com or you go on that web page and you have the contact form there. And if you are not shy and want to speak to me or, well, at least in one direction for the moment, send me a voicemail. You can do that very easily from the website. There is a tab on the right hand. Just click on it and it will guide you through, of course, for free. You will be able to send me a voicemail. It's always nice to hear your voices. And uh, while we are at feedback, uh, once again, I'm calling those of you who are performing artists, musicians, 
to send me their music. The music they have drives for, of course, and that we might then be able to play on this show because it's always wonderful to have contributions from you, the listeners. And as I like good music, and many of you do really good music, it's great when you do that and send that music to me and let me know about it. And we will play it on the show. Okay, so don't forget that. Right, well, another matter while you are on the website and you know what's coming, yes, please. Also, well, especially in difficult times, I have to ask you for your support because we all need to live, of course, and I know it's difficult for many of out there. you out there, um, but $1 per show is the first entry level as a supporter on Patreon of this show and, well, also prices for all that we do here, even if it's this is not for profit, this is just for making the show happen, right? So if you please go on Patreon, become a patron and subscribe there as a patron. And um, I would be very grateful. And to those of you who are already patrons, thank you that you are making this show possible for all the others as well. That's very, very grand of you. So um, do go on Patreon, look for Todd Tamer's podcast or do go on the website and click on the Patreon button, become a patron. And if you prefer to do a one-off donation rather than doing that regular weekly thing, then there's a donation button on the website as well. You can use that one as well. Thank you very much in advance. So before we go to speak to Reed Wildemuth, uh, you know that um, I always play some music here and I have, I think at least in one show, I'm not sure if it was two shows already that I played Japanese music, Japanese rock music. And I must say, I quite like it. And many of you seem to have liked it too. I got nice feedback. So I chose again, uh, Japanese um, rock music to, to play for you in this episode. And the first title that we are going to hear is called Without a Trace. Without a Trace, and it comes from a CD or a maxi single rather, which, called, which is called Distress and Coma. I believe it's not only the title of one of the songs on that maxi single, but also the group is called... The group is called GZT, I believe. So to be honest, um, I like the music. I have some of it, but I'm not very well versed in Japanese reading or anything. I just like the music. So I hope I'm saying that right. It's from the group GZT um, and it's from their maxi single Distress and Coma. It's a track called Without the Trace and with that with that trace of without the trace, <laughs> we'll start this show, so enjoy. <laughs>
GZT's maxi single Distress and Coma. This was the track Without the Trace. So um, now let's go and meet Reed, Reed Wildemuth. Reed, who was born somewhere in Tennessee, I believe, but he didn't live for long. There he moved to other places in the US. He's going to tell us all about this. Nowadays, he lives in Luxembourg, Europe, and I came across his website, Gods and Radicals, already an interesting title of a website, uh, which actually was the website of his own publishing company, Gods and Radicals Press. And I came across that website about three or four years ago, and I found a book that is called All That Is Sacred Is Profaned. 
and it says it is a pagan guide to Marxism. So, and that interesting combination, rare combination, um, intrigued me. I, I looked into that. I, I got the ebook and read it. I, I found it highly interesting. And um, so it has been some time that I have been following that website. It has changed uh, into another website called beautifulresistance.com. And nowadays, we even have an Academy Hérétique, a Heretic Academy, where Reed is also teaching. Um, all of this we're going to talk about in the upcoming interview. But I want to do now, as I often do, is to read you a short excerpt um, from the introduction to the book All That is Sacred is Profaned, um, to that introduction, which is surtitled Why a Pagan Guide to Marxism. It's a short piece from the middle of it, but I think it gives you good the, 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 the idea of what we're talking about here. A rather, well, a very political episode, actually, um, but sometimes that's needed. And um, also to speak not about traditional things, but also about new approaches and rather um, rare approaches to paganism and to our occult and esoteric world. So I'm now reading an excerpt from the introduction to that book by Reed Wildemus, All That is Sacred is Profaned. In the midst of all this climate and political chaos, there are new things to buy, new apps for our eye gadgets and new media distractors to ease our fears and fill the coffers of the capitalists. That's our world now. But another world all has always been possible. If anything, another world is the only thing possible now, because capitalism has made this world impossible. Paganism has always been about making another world possible. A world where forests exist for themselves rather than for the toilet paper that can be manufactured from the trees that compose them. A world where rivers are sacred because they are goddesses and gods where plants teach their use to the dreaming witch and animals guide the shaman into how to be more human. This paganism, more correctly called animism, existed everywhere in the world before the coming of capitalism. In some places, it still exists, never fully eradicated by the market imperative or the missionaries. In Europe, it appeared to die earlier, assaulted by empire and the church, centuries before the first factories broke the fingers of children and the backs of their parents. It had to be this way, you see. You couldn't have people worshipping land if you were going to turn it into property. Ironically, the birth of capitalism resurrected paganism in Europe, or a kind of paganism. Most of the early resistance movements to capitalism, the Levelers, the Ludites, the Rebeccas, the White Boys, evoked pagan gods and goddesses and claimed to take part in pagan rites in the name of fighting against the monstrous system, destroying what was left of the sacred. And that's where we come to that other thing I am, a Marxist. Okay, so much from Reed Wildemus, my guest's book here today. Um, I hope you are looking forward to this talk. Um, the sound quality on his side is not always perfect. I must apologize a bit, but you know, sometimes you, you cannot really do anything against uh, internet lines that are not always perfect. Um, I am a bit of a 
sound freak, so I always feel a bit unhappy when that happens. But I think the content is well doing the rest that you will forget about some moments where one or the other word is difficult to be understood. And um, when Reed is mentioning two or three names that I think are important, if you want to follow readings that uh, those people have written, I will put those, of course, as always, in the show notes and take particular attention this time to put those three or four names that he mentions that could be interesting for some of you in the also in the show notes in the link section. Okay. Good. So I'll be back in about 35 minutes with another piece of Japanese rock music. And now let's go and meet Reed Wildemuth. Here comes the interview. It's a great pleasure for me here now on the Thought Hermes podcast to welcome somebody. Well, um, actually, it has been several months that the two of us have tried to get together. And finally, we were able to make it. I'm very happy to welcome Reed Wildemuth here on my podcast. Reed, welcome to Thought Hermes. Well, hello and thanks for having me. It's great. Well, I came across you, well, quite a few years ago, I think it's now three or four years um, when I first saw your website, uh, which I believe then was called Only Gods and Radicals Press, because that's one of the, the imprints you're now working under and found your books. And what struck me at first immediately was that there was a combination of two things which you hardly ever hear mentioned in the same phrase um, paganism and um, well let's call anarchism or marxism depending on what approach you take to it and we will discuss it and i find that approach very interesting and fascinating because as i said it's it's quite unique in the in the, the world of the occult i believe so um Read um, before we go a little bit into the person that you are and why it came all together. Um, what, as a first approach, made you choose that combination? I guess for your life, it's not just an imprint; it's for your life, for you personally. Yeah. Um, so, so to clarify, uh, it was uh, we, we built ourselves as, as pagan anti-capitalism. So. Yes. Regardless of whether or not it was anarchist or Marxist or any other variation of, of anti-capitalist thought, that's what we um, that's what we embraced. Um, there were a few reasons for this. Uh, first of all, um, I was both of those things. I was a pagan and I was also an anti-capitalist. Uh, along with uh, a, a very close friend at the time, uh, we had been trying to talk about these subjects together um, to other people and finding that um, to our surprise, no one had even made the connection. Now, that's not fully true because, of course, there were older um, older figures, uh, particularly Starhawk. Starhawk being a great example of somebody who, who lended us to approaches and, and not so much as a, as a fusion, but saw them as part of the same branch of thought. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, on, on the other side, so, you know, pagans were... Usually, like the, the neo pagans sort to dressed up in, in fairy costumes or whatever and went to festivals. They, they didn't want to talk about <laughs> capitalism at all, usually because they were there for the, the products and for the experience. But on the, on the other hand, we also, you know, there, there have always been 
there's always a, an atheist bent to a lot of leftist politics, though that hasn't always been the case. Uh, one of the one of the examples I like to use very often is that the, the League of the Just, uh, which was the precursor um, to the, the group that Karl Marx was part of, was, was a Catholic group. Uh, mm-hmm. They were a Catholic communist or a Catholic socialist group, and they had actually specifically invited Marx and Engels to write the Communist Manifesto. So even though one has the sense that, that Marxism is, is explicitly atheist, anti-religious, all of that, um, its very foundings were part of a religious milieu, as it were. And there are all sorts of other examples as well. So for, for me and for the others who started Gods and Radicals Press the, uh, along with me, um, it, it, was, it seemed inevitable. It seemed so inevitable and so obvious that it was constantly surprising that no one else was talking about it. So we decided, okay, well, let's talk about it. Good point. Good point. Absolutely. No. And, and I, I have often also tried here, I don't know if that will be the subject of our talk here today, but to get somebody on, on the mic here for this podcast to talk about acti- uh, activism, occultist activism, so to speak, right? Because I think when you work in a certain way to, to better the world as it is pretended that many of us should do. Um, uh, that means also that you have to have a social feeling for the world, that you have to look after the people who, who live in that world. And um, I am always surprised how little that how, how little um, attention to that context is being given. Have you made that experience in general, or has your echo been from the very beginning very strong and and uh, positive? Uh, I've seen it change several times. Um, so I, I now live in Luxembourg, but I lived in the United States for most of my life. There was a large uptick of that, that sort of occult activism or witch activism or what have you around the mm. time of the election of Trump. Um, but of course it was, I wouldn't necessarily call all of it leftists, Activism, and I wouldn't call it all occult activism either. Um, right, you know, right. There were some laughable attempts to explain how um, ballot box, ballot. I'm sorry, ballot boxes or voting is a kind of magic, and good witches always vote. And you know, such things are patently absurd. They're ridiculous. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and that that was kind of a, a milk toast attempt to, to combine the two ideas. Um, specifically within liberal politics. And, and we've never been liberal. Uh, Gods and Radicals Press is... We, no, we are left, yeah, as yeah, amenable yeah. to liberal politics as we are to conservative politics. Absolutely. No, no, I, I understand that and I see that in, 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 your, in your writings and everything, yeah. And, and I would say, you know, there have been various attempts to, to, to continue doing that. There, there are some people who have written very good books on this, um, others who have written really ridiculous things, you know, the most famous of one being, uh, I won't mention his name, but the guy who, who suggested everybody hex Trump with a carrot. Um, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think all, all our <laughs> listeners know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it, we don't specifically push for a political occult program, as it were. Instead, it's, Mm-hmm. more a, hey, let, let these ideas inform what you're doing, but we're not going to 
tell you what to do. As many of us are anarchists or Marxists or, or in general, you know, critical of authoritarian thinking, it's, it wouldn't even be our part to tell people what to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and maybe maybe my English, as it is not my mother tongue, maybe is not precise enough. But when I speak about occult activism, I do not necessarily mean political, right? Yeah. But um, more in the sense of of a worldview, and uh, be it ecologist, be it anarchist, be it whatever, right? But not political as part in the meaning of party political. Well, let me go yeah. ahead. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna. I was just gonna bring up the point that you know, the one of the senses of political, even though it comes from the area of polis, being this, the, the city, um, you know, it's a sense of the manipulation of power, um, or it's a study of power, the study of the way that power flows. Um, occultists very often work with power as well, you know. So I yeah. would seem feel in general that that at least in that sense of politics occultism itself is inherently political. That doesn't mean it's necessarily aligned with any sort of political movements uh, that we know of right now, but if it's, if it's dealing in power at all, if it's attempting to influence things, that's, that's technically also political. Exactly, which in very strict occultist terms you would call left hand in any case, as soon as you influence your environment. Uh, well, uh, some people might cry out now here when they listen to me saying that, but um, that's one of the definitions of dif uh, between white and black magic, of course, when, when you're uh, not necessarily the only one, as we all know. Um, I mentioned occultism. Are you happy with the term occultism in the context of your type of paganism, the one that you practice or, or, or work with? Not so much because of the other sense of the word occult, which is, you know, as a verb, um, when, so, when you occult something, you hide it. You obviously. Right. Um, I, I, I usually avoid it. Um, I, I, of course, if someone describes what I what I write or what I think as something occulted or occult, I'd say sure, but I, I, I tend to prefer the words the word esoteric more than mm -hmm. occult, at least for my own work. I have no problems with that 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 label, but I it, I don't feel like it necessarily applies to what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I had the impression I'm using the word occult to avoid esotericism or esoteric because esoteric, at least in Europe, has been so much abused by, well, abused by, but misused, let's say, for everything that's, that's just, we are all happy and all, uh, all, all just, yeah, yeah you know, well, I don't want to, to talk about it too much because I don't want to, to bless anybody, but, uh, or to, to, to hurt anyone. But, but, um, but it's, 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 I think we all know what, what I mean by that. And that's why I avoid the word esoteric and use occult for instead. Sure. We come from both ends to, to a different conclusion. And yeah. um, you speak, when you speak about gods and radicals press, and your other website, uh, Beautiful Resistance, which is now the, the, the website that leads to everything that you do. Um, uh, you speak about we when you just mentioned it. We started it. We do it. Yeah. Who's we? Well, so I, I, I need to make clear that while I'm the director of publishing for Gods and Radicals Press and Ritona and a Beautiful Resistance, I'm not the only one involved with it. You know, there's, there's always been other people involved. It was founded... 
uh, I guess it would be almost seven years now, or a little over seven years ago, by myself and a close friend and a few others who decided to, you know, start it. We've had at least, I think, 60 or 70 writers over the years uh, published with us. There's, uh, we have a site editor, Myrna, Myrna, I'm sorry, um, who, you know, she, she runs all of the editing for the actual online journal that we do. And then uh, we have people who work with us on the, the publishing end as well. So, uh, so you know, I don't, I, I, I'm the director of it and I speak for it, I guess, but I'm not, I'm not it, as it were. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I also have my own personal writing that I publish through other places, specifically through Substack right now. Um, you know, so so that's when I say we, I mean that as a, as a collective project, and when I say I, I mean specifically when I'm speaking about myself and my own work. Mm-hmm. And does uh, do the members of that? Well, maybe not all authors, but the group, the active, the active group who work in Gods and Radicals Press. And so are they all, uh, would you all define them or do they define themselves as like you, uh, anarchist and pagan? Uh, is that a common feature of all of you or are you from different angles? Well, so, yeah, there's a funny thing here. So first of all, I started out as an anarchist and I... I'm no longer an anarchist. I, I would define. I, I got that. We're coming to that a bit later, but it's good you mention it. Yes. Uh, but of course, having been an anarchist, and because one of the other co-founders, uh, Ali Valkyrie, uh, she was also an anarchist. We tended to attract a lot of anarchist writers, and of course, we continue to publish anarchist writers. Um, but now that I'm not so much anarchist, sometimes I'm at odds with the ideas of some of the other writers, and even with our readership. Um, you know, so I'm a Marxist. Uh, there are several who identify themselves as anarchists. Um, a few who kind of go back and forth. A few who don't even name their political tendencies whatsoever, but share the same critique of capitalism that we have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think it's now time um, to, before we go deeper into into those questions, um, to um, talk about the person read right about who you are and where where it actually all started for you because i mean we all we don't fall like that on the earth and and are what we are but we have developed our thoughts our ideas we got them maybe from somewhere how did it all start with read uh, what what was the beginning that made you aware of of thinking maybe a little different from other people uh, so those are all dreams. Um, I, I, I'd say I get most of my occult knowledge from dreams, or most of my politics from dreams as well. Um, I so I was born in the United States. I was born in Appalachia, uh, in Ohio, on the border uh, with West Virginia. Uh, I grew up extremely poor. Lived several places uh, across the country when I was young. Moved to Seattle. Lived there for almost two decades. Uh, most of my life was spent, um, I guess, kind of a white trash street punk, as it were. Uh, I don't know if that mm-hmm. those necessarily make sense to any of the European listeners, but uh, that well, is, I think it does. And we have eighty-five percent North American listeners, so uh, don't you worry. They <laughs> all know what a white trash street punk is, I guess. I don't always yeah, know, yeah. but um, 
Uh, yeah, and and I would have these these moments, uh, sometimes waking, more often sleeping, where I would have these really profound dreams that I could not make any sense of, and it felt like they were still happening as I woke up. This happened very often, and what would eventually happen is I decided, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna run with this idea that was in the dream and see what happens because this is kind of disturbing. Uh, you know, it seemed almost. Uh, kind of a schizophrenic break or a mental illness. And then I realized, oh, wait, no, okay, this this apparently follows along with a lot of the other, you know, initiatory or self-initiatory uh, experiences that people have or priest callings or shamanic callings or whatever you want to have it. So at that point I realized, okay, I'm not going crazy. Okay, I'll just keep following this stuff. And uh, so I'm 45 now. Six years ago, I moved to Europe, uh, again, because of dreams. Um, I would have these moments where I'd be walking on the street in Seattle and suddenly see myself somewhere else. And I finally realized, wait, I think I know where these places are. I'm going to go see. And then I turned out, oh, okay. I, yeah, I guess I'm moving here, this city. And I lived in France for four years or Three and a half years, I guess. And then I moved to Luxembourg. So I'm in the Ardennes now, uh, which is kind of an important place for me. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's how I ended up here. Okay. And did you, from your family side, have that um, background of thoughts or was it all created on your own for you? Oh, uh, <laughs> let's see, how, how would we put this? Uh, my mother is a raving schizophrenic. Um, so mm. maybe, um, you know, it's, I, I remember when she was having her schizophrenic break when I was extremely young and she was screaming mm. at demons and, and, and talking to people who were not there. And then sometimes, um, shouting back at people who she knew were thinking things about her. And of course this was, yeah. uh, you know, psychologically, um, anybody would define it as, as madness or schizophrenia or whatever, but there was a very odd, eerie sense to everything she was saying where it was like, wait, but how did she know that? And so, you know, while I've never really kind of, thought too much further on that, you know, she's, she's happy. She's in an okay and safe mm. place. Um, you know, per perhaps that had some influence on me. Um, perhaps that was, you know, if there is such a thing as an ancestral bloodline or something, uh, you know, maybe there was something like that, that just got watered down or mixed up a little bit. And my mother, um, that passed on to myself and my siblings, who knows? Um, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't concern myself too much with questions like that. Mm, no, no, I, I wasn't specifically thinking of that, of course, because I didn't know, but thank you for being so open to share that. And then, of course, that's, that's the experiences always who, who form us at some point. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. And you seem to be somebody who is extremely educated, who's read a lot about this, the things that you represent, etc. Uh, uh, how, how did that happen? Did you, were you just a very curious person or, or, or did, how did it come upon you? <laughs> You're laughing. Oh, yeah, well, so I have another funny story here, or a, a, a story that might sound very tragic and maybe isn't. Um, when I was a child, 
my father, when he was off visiting, um, or shall we say mistresses, uh, would drop me off at the public library in a very small town about 40 miles or I guess it's 60 kilometers away from our house. And then he'd forget about me. <laughs> so I as an eight or nine year old child in a library until I had read everything that was in the children's section. And there was nothing else to read. And then finally I started reading the adult section. I remember one of the first things that, that absolutely obsessed me were, were books on, on, on astronomy um, and, uh, okay. and everything. So, you know, by the, by the time I think I was nine or ten, I had read everything that was in the, the ancient history section and the astronomy section of this, you know, albeit small library. So, and that just kind of continued. I guess, uh, you know, books for me kind of became a escape from reality that ended up bringing me into a different reality that then escapes mm-hmm. my own reality. And it's, it's always been like that since, you know, as I said, since about the time I was eight. Interesting. It's funny because um, at least in the eastern United States, um, small city or small uh, town libraries seem to have played a big role in the life of many people who then turned to become, um, well, part of that occultist esoteric world, <laughs> as it seems in very different ways. Many people uh, tell me that they have had their first encounter in small, in small public libraries. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah, and the, the bookmobiles, you know, those are temples of knowledge on wheels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good, good point. Good, good thing. Yeah, yeah. And I always like my listeners here know that already. I always like to have my guests who are well versed in a subject to define um, to define some terms that seem to be quite obvious, but because they are so obvious, they have 27 different definitions, different for each one. Um, and what is your, how would you personally see or define paganism in the way you work it, in the way you use it or work with it? What's, what's your type of paganism? Ah, so uh, I did write a book on this. Um, I you know, <laughs> very recently, a year and a half ago, it's here, yeah. uh, not on my desk, but on my screen, actually. <laughs> so, so I started out in that book, um, you know, I, I, I called it being pagan as opposed to paganism or anything else like that, because um, my view of paganism, of being pagan, as it were, is the is based off of the idea of those who lived outside of the polis or the civitas. Um, you know, pagan was a Roman slur for the rural rednecks who lived past the paganos, or they were the paganos and they lived past the pagus. Um, in other words, out in the sticks, out in the nowhere area, they were the uncivilized people who still. Um, unaccountably held to extremely old beliefs, uh, worshipped extremely old gods, didn't bother with the temples of the city, etc. When the, when the Christians took over, they started using that word to define anybody who was not part of the uh, you know, army of Christ, as it were. But, but they started out as a slur. Uh, heathen is the same thing. You know, it's the hiding, the hiding, those people who lived on the, on the streets outside of the villages, outside of the towns, uh, in extremely remote areas. So when I, when I speak of paganism or to define paganism, I mean that 
that system of belief or that framework of belief, uh, the belief that is outside of civilization, uh, that isn't informed by civilized uh, power, um, that isn't part of the politics or the polis, as it were, that it's instead something much closer to the rhythms of the earth, its seasons, natural time, etc. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, Christianity started a bit up like that in the very, very beginnings. Then, then it became in the Roman Empire, the establishment, so to speak, and it has stayed that ever since. And, and it's interesting that they chose that name for, for those who were not them, right? <laughs> At some point. Well, um, and it's interesting that that name have survived like that. Yeah, Christian itself was also a slur. <laughs> you know? Like all of these, all yeah. these names that we're using to find things tend to start out as insults. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but if I get you well, and also that's what I read uh, in your lines in that book and also in between the lines. And I find that very fascinating also in regards to esotericism um, that you you say that paganism is very much linked to the place where you are. I mean, that probably paganism can look different depending on where you are rooted with it. I mean, not necessarily where you live, but where you feel rooted in it, right? Would you, would you agree on that? Absolutely. Yeah. So your personal story brought you to a place here in Europe, in the Ardennes, in that um, hill or mountain range uh, uh, in, 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 in the west of Europe. Um, and I think your uh, the, the, the name Ardennes itself and all the, the pagan background of, of the area has very much influenced you lately, especially since you lived there. Would that be true? Can you, get, can you tell our listeners a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah sure. So... Uh, so the Arden, the, that, that, that word that is used to describe a region, as it were, uh, comes from uh, Arduina Silva, which was the forest of Arduina. That was what the, the Romans called it, and specifically because that forest was um, where they worshipped a goddess named Arduina. Um, Arduina was also the name of the forest itself. In, in the old animisms and the old paganisms, you usually find that the gods and the places that there are gods of fade into each other, um, but there's no clear boundaries between them. So, you know, the name Arden survived, uh, and I'm, I found myself living in a, you know, you know, within this region, in a fragment of Arduina's forest. That has been particularly profound for me to start thinking about what that means. And then as I started, started following up on these ideas, started researching the gods here, I ended up just happening upon, as it were, the same way that Jung describes with uh, synchronicity. Um, you know, things just started happening. The knowledge started coming to me. Um, places started arriving to me. So... Where I'm living now is a very small village um, where the very last wolf in Luxembourg was killed. Uh, the, the wolf has recently returned. It's, it's just a little bit away, a, a monument to the last wolf. If you go the opposite direction, about four kilometers, there's an old Druidic site that was originally for Arduina and then later was for Freya. Uh, and in fact, it's 
one of the names for it now is the Freyle, the Freyle's Rocks. Uh, I didn't mean to be living right next to this place, but it turned out I was, almost as if I was called here. Um, I, I find that this, those sorts of stories, those sorts of connections kind of keep expanding around me um, to the point where I can see as, as if you know, I'm not even fully writing my own story. The, the, the story is being written around me. I'm just kind of a part of the story and constantly encountering the gods of this place has been teaching, I think, more about these matters than anything else I've learned in my entire life. Now, that's an interesting question for me in the respect to how you live esotericism, for example. Are you the tool of something? Because the way you just described it, you one could feel, you feel like not being used, that's a bad term for it, but being a tool? Or are you able to create and direct yourself what's happening around you? I think it's more like a dance, you know, where you're always dancing with other things. You, you, you can dance alone, but you're still never fully dancing alone. You're dancing with the air around mm. you. You're dancing with the earth below you. I, I think it's more like that. I think, I guess I would describe it more as dancing than I would as being a tool or being a you know, magician or a sorcerer or anything else like that. It's, no, I'm kind of dancer. Okay, okay. Um, arts seem to play an important role in that, don't they? Also for you, because I saw several blog articles that you wrote about arts and excessive art. I remember the one with the fireworks, oh, yeah. you know. Um, um, what to, is art, because you mentioned dance, dance can also be seen as an art form, depending. Yeah. Um, would you would you say that, that you you feel a bit like a kind of artist or would that be exaggerated? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm a writer and I think any, any good yeah. writer is an artist. So that's part of it. I, I've done, Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I, I've done music uh, before, but, you know, I, I, I tend to collect artists in my life, but I, I wouldn't necessarily always consider myself an artist, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by it. Uh, that, that essay you were referring to, um, specifically was an event that I got to experience that was incredible. And it was yeah. often a chance for me to uh, bring in some, um, uh, you know, one of my favorite um, leftist occultists, as it were, who's, who's very rarely ever uh, noted as such. I think the only person I've ever heard speak of him specifically as kind of part of the leftist occultist tradition is Peter Gray. He mentioned him. Um, the yeah. person we're talking about is George Bataille. Um, when you read George Bataille's work, it's like, wait a minute, you are, wow, okay. Um, right here is the leftist philosophy and occultism all together at the same time, even though neither occultist nor leftist necessarily accept him as one of theirs. Absolutely. No, I, I'm, 
I, I'm fascinated by, by, by that uh, leftist occultism. I want to come back to in, into that a little bit in a minute. But um, as we speak about who is who, um, you call yourself, I think it's one of your, those, it's not Facebook, but one of those definitions on, on the blog, I think I saw it. You call yourself a druid and autonomous Marxist, <laughs> right? So maybe sp speak about the druid first and then we go to do the autonomous Marxist, if you can separate it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I did start out, and, and I think anyone who, who tries to do this probably does as well. I did start out in uh, in one of the Druid orders to, you know, start training, because it seemed like it was something I needed to do. Uh, I, I don't necessarily associate myself with that order any longer. Um, but when I, when I say Druid, I don't mean, you know... I'm not like some magic caster or some political leader of a people. I mean, that's, that's my role in the land around me. Uh, you know, it's the same way as, you know, kind of saying villager or caretaker. So for me, that's, that druidry also is very similar to my idea of paganism. My, you know, being pagan here looks radically different than it did when I was living in Seattle. And it would look rather yeah. different than anywhere else they've lived. There will be similar features. Can, can you can you explain can you explain with a few words the difference between uh, paganism in Seattle and paganism in Luxembourg? Ah, so the trees are much older in Seattle, um, or at least outside of Seattle. But there's so much else in the way that they seem extremely distant. Whereas where I am here, um, the oldest tree I've been able to find is only about a thousand years old. You know, I, I was used to watch, walking through the Olympic Peninsula and seeing trees that were six and seven thousand years old. So it's everything is very young here, except there's much less in the way of interacting with those trees. Um, I, I, I will always default to trees for descriptions, by the way. If, if you want to know the difference between two places, I will tell, yeah. you, I will tell you what the trees feel like in both places. So. The Ardennes, of course, have also a very, a very played a strong role, especially in World War One. So the, the, the area where you live in, where heavy fighting was going on for years there in World War One. Do you, as a pagan, feel the energies of those happenings hundred, hundred ten years ago? Do you still realize them, or is that something that is not part of your? of your um, life to, 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 to sense those kind of energies, like death that happened there and suffering and everything. Mm. You know, there are, of course, graveyards for soldiers quite all over mm. the place in, in Luxembourg. You tend to see much more monuments for World War II than you will for World War I. Um, mm -hmm. just yeah, true, yeah, sure. Uh, the village I live in only has about, uh, I guess it's 28 houses now. And the, one of those houses, uh, the last one, an, an old red mill, is where Ernest Hemingway stayed when he was covering the, the, the stuff in World War II. So I'm just right. down the street from where he, it turned out, drank his own piss in the middle of the night. Fun story on that. It's definitely worth looking up. But uh, I, the, that, I think, is written more on the people than it necessarily is on the land here. Uh, you know, okay. this was under occupation during World War II. Um, 
you know, every, everybody knows the, the descendants of the people who were working with the Nazis and the descendants of the people who were not working with the Nazis. And that's still part of their memory, even though it's, you know, been quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And you tend to be able to read that history more on people than you can on the land here, at least specifically right. where I am. Right, because I remember um, my wife and I, we, we lived uh, some 70, 80 kilometers north of Vienna for two years and we moved away because uh, we had so bad, felt so bad energies there and we found out that a big battle of the 30 years war had taken place on the very grounds where the village was built uh, and um, well, I, I believe that that was the reason why well, we had bad influences in our energy. Yeah, I can yeah. compare that actually to Seattle. So, you know, I lived in Seattle for a very long time and then I moved here. And one of the first things that I realized was, wow, the land in Seattle is extremely angry. You know, there's a lot of anger there in that land everywhere around it. You know, is it necessarily from the city itself? Is it because of all the slaughters of indigenous people? You know, it's it, it was... Never something I looked into very deeply while there because I had not really known much else. But it, mm-hmm. it, everything felt more peaceful and quiet in the places I've lived here. And I think that's, you know, possibly a similar phenomenon as well. Yeah, yeah. Now let's take a little musical break as promised and we go back to Japan this again to listen to, well, now I even have to announce a Japanese title. And I really do apologize for those of you who are Japanese, who speak Japanese. I, when I pronounce that name, it sounds Finnish to me. I don't know why. Mizenen um, is the title of the next track that is from GZT, from their single. Well, it is a single release, actually, which was released, I believe, in 2004. The one before was 2009. This is 2004. So Mizenen. Uh, yes, I know it's not finished when I say that. I, I apologize. And um, well, after that, we return to read and listen to the continuation of that wonderful talk we had, another 32 minutes with him. And as always, after the interview, there will be a third track. And that third track is also from GZT, as I announced from an album an album from 2013, so the newest of the three tracks that we hear today, uh, which is from 2013, an album called Beautiful Deformity. And Last Heaven is the track name that we are going to hear. So once again, Misenen and then the interview part two. And after that, Last Heaven, both musical tracks like the first one we heard here today by the Japanese rock group GZT. Okay, so now... Let's go there immediately and enjoy the music. I'm 
Let's go to the autonomous anar uh, Marxists then. Uh, what the heck is an autonomous Marxist? Right. Well, so, you know, uh, Marxist, of course, I think everyone probably knows what Marxist is. Um, well, yeah, I think we can, we can live with that. <laughs> um, autonomous Marxism is, is uh, much closer to, let's see, the Zapatistas uh, in Oaxaca. Uh, they would be considered autonomous Marxists, meaning that they're Marxists that do not align with, with a specific party um, tradition, as it were. Marx is, Marxism has traditions the same way that occult side traditions, you know. Um, and it would be more a, a less of a desire to implement a state in order to have a proletariat revolution. Instead, it's, hey, let's use these Marxist principles and instead use our own indigenous life or cultural forms to to create a society that's better this way. So autonomous Marxism is pretty much Marxism without the state. Right, right. So in fact, that's kind of almost pure early Marxism because, because what happened later and turned into Leninism and communism and Stalinism in the worst places um, is far away from what Marx imagined in the 19th century, right? Right. Um, it's, it's not worth having that discussion with most people because they, there, there was, it's been buried under so much bad blood and bad history mm. that yeah. um, it's, I, I don't go around saying, well, I'm a original Marxist. I'm a, You know, it's a bit like I'm a British traditional witch. I'm a I'm a traditional Marxist in this, you know, and I know I yeah yeah I yeah yeah. Well, let's rather talk uh, uh, not about the definition of what you are, but maybe of what you think is necessary and how that relates also to your paganism because uh, as you said clearly in the very beginning of our talk, there is a strong link between the two for you. Yeah. So. Sylvia Federici, who was a Marxist feminist, and she wrote Caliban and the Witch, which was quite popular for a while uh, within occult circles as well as pagan circles and in some Marxist and anarchist political... Um, say, say her name again, I didn't catch it. Sylvia Federici. Ah, okay, yes. Mm -hmm. now, she had written a book that was showing how 
the witch trials in, in, in Europe were happening at the exact same time as the creation of the proletariat within Europe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she suggested, and, and I think kind of convincingly, convincingly proves that they needed to happen in order for capitalists to transition people from earlier forms of economic exchange into a proletarianized mass that was just a labor force. One of the things she specifies mm-hmm. in, uh, in that book, and as well as uh, in one of her essays that I had the honor of publishing first, which was quite exciting, was that this, okay. this process required capitalists to um, alienate us from our bodies and from older cultural forms. That included the idea of witchcraft or what we now call as witchcraft very often. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. sense that you could talk to, to ancestors, the sense that you could hear um, animals and spirits and all of that. The capitalists needed to, to, to remove that from the masses in order to make them so alienated that they, they, they could fit better into machines as if they were interchangeable cogs. So, you know, right there, I think, is... is where I begin with the intersection between Marxism and paganism or Marxism or even occultism. Um, you know, another fun thing is, is uh, labor itself. Uh, the way labor functions within Marxism is pretty much an occult principle. It's the amount of intention, as it were, or the, you know, an almost esoteric or occulted force that we apply to the world that then transforms everything around us into something of value. Uh, Marx is talking about an esoteric concept there, um, which, of course, this is what the, the capitalist class needs us for. They need us to apply our labor to create value for them, which then creates wealth. Um, so, yeah, in a very small nutshell, there's probably a thousand questions one can ask after those things. We could go in a thousand different directions. But I would say right there in those two two matters, the, the matter of the I'm sorry, it's so hard to say that word. The creation of the proletariat (laughs) in Europe uh, requiring us to be alienated from nature, from the body, and from ourselves. And then also this esoteric or occulted uh, force, as it were, this human force called uh, labor that creates value. Um, Those are the two places where I see the the greatest intersections between um, paganism and Marxism. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, what you're talking about here was what I what first brought me to you because I found that book. I think it's called "All That Is Sacred Is Profaned," right? Which you wrote about three or four years ago, I believe. Uh, and its subtitle is something like "A Pagan Guide to Marxism," if I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, that's a Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so uh, I'm happy for you to, to, to continue a bit further on that because I think that's a very interesting subject also for our listeners here. And it's a rare subject. So if you, if you want to go, go, go a bit deeper into that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start with, with the stories that fascinate me the most. And maybe, maybe we could just contain mm-hmm. them there with these stories. But sure. one of my favorite stories is, is that of uh, King Lude or the Luddites, as it were. Um, which was a resistance movement in, in England at the beginning of industrialization, 
where a group of people uh, would say or would claim to be following a ghostly general whom they called General Lud or Ned Lud, depending on, on which group you asked. They would break into factories and smash into these factories, uh, destroying all of the all of the machines within them in the name of this unseen, um, supposedly divine, uh, supposedly ghostly figure. Now, as they would tell crazy stories about him, uh, he lived under a specific mound, which, of course, for anybody who's you look at Celtic uh, god myths or Celtic mythology, most of the gods lived on the mound. In fact, the gods went into the mound, as it were, the old ones, uh, to hide there to become the Catholic gods when they were replaced by other gods. You see a very similar thing happen in Ireland with a group called the White Boys. The White Boys went around nailing eviction notices in the name of an ancient uh, Irish goddess, uh, Queen Sab, um, saying that... Uh, if these, these property owners do not leave, um, then we will turn the land itself against them uh, because she is the queen of sovereignty of this land. So uh, these are both happening in the, the, the 17 and 1800s, even though Christianity has supposedly taken hold of everything. But you see all of these resistance movements using, evoking as it were, or invoking uh, uh, pagan figures. Now, I... I think there's a lot of this. You could kind of keep going everywhere and look at every single culture. One of my favorite, or favorite examples of this recently is that of the Nikta, who are in Cambodia. The Nikta are land spirits. Uh, they, they function as very similar to the way some European land spirit ideas do, where they're part ancestors, part spirits of the land, part gods of the land, as it were. So there was a... a rather famous, it made it in the New York Times, a spate of possessions by the Nikta of Cambodian textile worker uh, folk. And they were all women, by the way. These women would be on the factory floor and suddenly find themselves channeling the Nikta. Um, and the Nikta were giving orders to the factory owners, telling them, you need to give these women breaks, or you need to move this factory somewhere else, or you need to build a shrine to me if you're going to continue to have this factory here. Now, you know, of course, the secular mind thought as a, as a bit of a, you know, mass psychosis and, or maybe as a, an act of political theater, but, you know, from a pagan or a cult or esoteric uh, perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. So sometimes the gods do kind of do what people think that they do. Um, Sometimes the gods are happily involved in some of these resistance movements. Now, sometimes the gods are on the other side as well. You know, gods, gods do that. Um, but, but that has always fascinated me a lot. And there's another, you know, as I said, I'm not so much an anarchist any longer, but there is a really profound and extremely short, way too short book by Erica Lagalis that's called The Occult Features of Anarchism. And it's only the first half of this book. It's, it's pretty much more a pamphlet than it is a book, um, where she discusses the intersections between uh, utopian socialism and anarchist groups and ideas 
and the Masonic and other occult lodges within Europe, you know, these fraternity groups, etc., um, mm-hmm. where one could either say that the anarchists were just kind of hanging out there to hide from authorities, or one could say that the, these were alembics for new ideas that then birthed what we have now. Um, I, most anarchists would say, no, it's, it was never a cultist. And, you know, anarchism is even more uh, extreme atheism or extreme atheist, I think, than most Marxists really are. But uh, there's, there's a lot there as well that, that you know, as I said, could, we, we could go hours over that subject. That's Erika Lagalis, right? You mentioned here. The, Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just to to because I mentioned that name and also you mentioned Silvia Federici before. Um, for our listeners, I will put those names and links also on on the show notes because sometimes those names pass by a quick quickly when we speak. And um, if you want to find those those articles and stuff, um, I will put the links on the on the website. So. Um, But you said now it's the second time you no longer consider yourself an anarchist. So what do you consider yourself today? And um, how, how come that you moved away from that? Mm. It was my experience in America that made me an anarchist and then made me no longer an anarchist. Um, I, I, I feel like something actually happened to anarchism in the last six or seven years in the United States, especially with the a focus on uh, Antifa or um, on anti-fascist action. But what really happened was a lot more people got defined as fascist than actually were. And that tended to shift the focus of anarchist politics away from this idea of building, you know, self-sufficient communities that did not rely on state authority, instead towards becoming you know, quite, quite nasty gangs making sure that other people that they deem as enemies don't get to speak. So, you know, that, a lot of that was my divorce from anarchism. I originally, and, and the ideas themselves behind it, most of them are beautiful. Uh, I say most, not all. Um, August Blanqui, who is the guy who came up with the phrase, ni Dieu ni maître, no gods, no masters, was actually kind of an awful person. And he's also, incidentally, the roots of vanguardism, uh, which Lenin picked up later on. Mm. Um, but so when we talk about the Marxist vanguard, what we should actually be talking about is the anarchist vanguard seen through Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as I said, I describe myself as an autonomous Marxist now, which is uh, not a big fan of states. I'm also realistic about the fact that sometimes states have to exist that people need leaders, people can choose their own leaders, and it's okay. No one needs to conform to my beliefs that everyone can do what they want. Um, And especially I think we see in indigenous cultures that they have their own forms of governance that, you know, don't really qualify even as states at all, but they do have hierarchies, they do have leaders, they do have chiefs and chieftains and, 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 and other leaders There's no need for us to abolish that in order to have, you know, uh, a world without capitalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Interesting, and what? You, but what you said in the beginning. This is not a, a podcast about politics, but um, what you said in the beginning, just maybe just to mention that uh, about anarchism and how it changed. Um, I have a feeling that this is a general thing that happens with leftist thought that um, where earlier uh, leftist thought was always open for critical thinking and now it's only open to its own thinking anymore but maybe maybe i i'm too i'm too critical about that no i don't think you are i actually i have a book that is being published by someone who's not uh, the publisher i run um actually by repeater press in the the uk next year that's pretty much on that subject that you know that you that you have written yeah yeah actually that i'm currently in the final stages of the second round of edits that the publisher sent back to me. So. Uh, right. Can you can you already give us a title so that we can be on the lookout for it, or is that too early? I can actually. It's called "Sheer Be Monsters: How to Fight Capital Without Fighting Each Other." Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. And when is it due? Uh, September of twenty twenty three. So next year. Okay, so a year from now. Okay, so we might have to talk about that again when when it's out. <laughs> okay, um, now let's let's come back to to what you just said. Do you think that um, paganism, the way you practice it, uh, can or even should help to the healing of the world? And what is your view? Um, maybe influenced by that paganism on an ideal society today. Well, I, I don't I don't like the idea of ideal anything. Uh, so yeah, maybe I maybe can, yeah, I know that wouldn't would would can't contradict what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah. So you know, I, I definitely I I think it's I think it's less important that it be paganism and more important that it be some concept of the sacred um, that would help actually, you know, heal the world as it were. Um, I, I used the example in an essay a while ago about, um, you know, when, when people see a forest as sacred, they're much less likely to go cut down the entire thing for wood. Um, if they believe that something has a God within it or it belongs to a God, they're not necessarily going to go destroy it. Now, that's not to say that they won't, they might actually change their political ideas or their theological ideas in order to allow them to do so. But for the most part, when a thing is sacred, you leave it be. Uh, you you let it be its own. You don't cut down sacred trees, as it were. You don't you don't pollute sacred forests. You don't pollute sacred rivers. You don't you know you don't do that sort of thing. So while paganism, at least paganism as I describe it, and again, it's probably important to make a distinction between what I'm describing and this sort of neo-paganism that you might find in America right now, or even, you know, oftentimes in, in the United Kingdom, the, the paganism has that sense of the sacred, as I describe it, but other religions do mm-hmm. as well. And it need not necessarily even be a religious thing, but it cannot be a, a, a empty platitude of, oh, everything is sacred. Like, let's not harm things. And then you relentlessly harm them anyway and not realize it's harm or not call it harm. Um, so, you know, even if that, even if that means Christianity for some, 
you know, uh, or other monotheisms for some. Uh, or, you know, of course, there are the, there's that very big, large polytheist religion that no one ever seems to talk about, Hinduism, you know. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we've developed or, or ways in which we've expressed a belief in the sacred and interacted with the world through the concept of the sacred. Um, I, that's what I think is more important than being pagan itself. You know, in any way, my definition of pagan kind of fits with those ideas as well. So. Yeah, I was going to say that's what I get from your book, that this is your paganism, the, the uh, looking and living, looking for and living the sacred, right? Yeah. yeah, because I remember when you, when you, for example, described that today we get up because the, 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 the alarm clock or the electronic alarm goes off and not because the sun rises or the birds sing or whatever. Yeah. Just to give one example, that gives you, of course, a completely different and much more materialistic feeling of life and you lose the contact to what you call and what is the sacred. Is that how you, do I read you well there? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly how I would describe the beginning of, you know, like in, in my book and also in the course that I teach on it, I tell people that the first step of attempting to be pagan or being pagan is to go look at the moon. So realize that there's this, this thing that has been with humanity ever since there have been humans and even longer since. Yeah. Uh, that humans have used to used as a way of telling the passage of time. And they were using that mm -hmm. way before clocks or smartphones or anything else like that. We were measuring our life by nature itself or a part of nature, the moon. And now we're using machines. And, and that, that shift, which is a very recent shift, has also been part of our loss of the city. So... Right. Reorienting people towards that, that sense of natural time and not natural time as a, as a feeling, but actually as the rhythm of nature around you, the rhythm of land around you, which of course changes. It changes all over the time and it will be different everywhere in the world. It's, you cannot create a universal time out of natural time. And that's for the better, actually. A lot of our you know, one of the one of the worst problems with Marxism, which is the same problem that we see in capitalism, is that there's this attempt to universalize everything, to make everything the same. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. state communism and capitalism and all of these forms does the same thing. It reduces people and things into something to be bought and sold, and then there's nothing else, and everyone has to be the same. And mm. we need to get past that idea of anything ever being the same anywhere in the world and instead realize that you know it, there are millions or billions of types of public you know, billions of places yeah. in the world. i think you're making a crucial point here that's to me at least one of the major difficulties in meeting up this marxist thought with with um esoteric thought that the individual is is not respected as enough as it should be, I think. I, I think in Marxism, and that's, that's maybe the problem. Do you happen to know a book that has appeared, um, well, maybe 20-ish years ago, which was called 
yoga, but not talking about the Kali Yuga and those things, but it's called yoga. And uh, by Marty Glass, I think it was, he speaks about the five falls of humanity, the fall into time, the reign of quantity, the mutation into machinery, the end of nature and the prison of unreality. There's sort of five falls. And um, uh, he says that actually, as this yuga um, uh, means we are unable to escape from those five falls uh, until a new, a new, a new, whatever a new time appears like the golden time you know or the silver the silver time or whatever um what do you think is is there realistic hope for humanity in your in your view in your pagan marxist view to that we overcome those problems that we have at the moment ecology i'm not talking about the war at the moment I'm talking about much more uh, crucial things like the ecological problems, the resource problems, the, uh, the, the problem of losing the spiritual side. Um, do you think we have a way of getting out of that? I, I think if we do, we have to lose hope first. We have to completely lose all hope in ever fixing anything and ever being something else. And, and from that point of mm. Absolute abject despair is where you can actually find hope. You know, that, that sounds, I guess, kind of bleak, but it, it's something that I've, I've learned a lot reading a lot of people who consider themselves post activists, people who have, uh, in one way or another, whether it was environmentalism, whether it was social justice activism or leftist activism or even right wing activism. People who have said, okay, actually, no, I'm going to stop trying to change things because it is impossible. And then after a while, they come to new conclusions and I find their experiences quite hopeful. So I think that's the same thing. Like we have to give up hope that there is ever a possible way of humans organizing in such a manner that we can fix this. Just like we have to give up hope in any new technology coming around that will suck all of the carbon dioxide back out of the air into machines or what have you. We have to stop hoping for every, any of those things. And once you get to that point of, you know, the abyss, as it were, you know, or an agreedo, which are the blocking, you know, then you can start having something. Uh, so I, I personally, you know, I've, I've been at that point of despair many times and I still have lots of hope. So, um, but I, I, can't, okay. I can't really explain or justify why to anyone. I, I just do. It is there. Well, I would consider that saying we have to lose hope first as a deeply um, occultist view of the world in a way. In the, in the positive sense of the word occultist, in the way I mean it, right? So, so. Can you give one or two names of people who, who, who have published works on, on that thought? or? Yeah. So, so the, um, there's actually two, um, I'm going to pronounce his last name completely wrong and probably his first name completely wrong, but Bio Akalomefe, uh, who's a Nigerian post-activist of the word. Uh, I, I can send you his name later on or even look it up for you in a bit. Please send it to me and I, once again, I will publish it on the show notes okay. um, so people can, can also link to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and another one, um, and this has been interesting as well, is Paul Kingsmore. Uh, 
he was one of the co-founders with Dougal Hind of the, uh, the Dark Mountain Manifesto, which was a, you know, kind of a post-environmentalist group where, you know, they started out being active environment, environmentalists, uh, doing absolutely they can to try to make, uh, you know, to stop climate change. And then they suddenly realized, wait, it's, we're past that point. We, we can't pull this back anymore. Now what do we do? And his writing has been very interesting. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, he's, he's gone uh, Orthodox Christian, which, um, you know, okay. I often think if you're going to be Christian, like, you know, the more Orthodox you're going to be, the better. And I don't mean like Orthodox as in 400 <laughs> years ago, but I mean like just, just go right all the way to the source if you can. Um, but, but, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, both, they're both, I think, very interesting uh, people to look at mm-hmm. um, for that, that sense of, okay, what, what comes after we finally stop trying to fix this? You know, what can we then do? Right, right. Well, I think it is already going to be my last question because we are at the end of our time already. Um, uh, I mean the time of the podcast time, not the end of times. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking about that. Um, But um, uh, why do you think... um, Esotericism nowadays is so often seen as right wing. Is that is that justified, or is it just seeing it with one eye only? Why why is that happening? I I, I have a hard time understanding. Of course, you see examples for it, but there are also many other examples for the other. I think, yeah, like I. There are, of course, many esotericists who could probably be identified as right-wing. But yeah. I think part of the problem as well is we're defining right and left from a political perspective that is that tends to be very much an American political perspective where um, anything that counters this idea of a universal march of progress must therefore be right-wing which is very strange to think of that because really this idea of progress, of everything always getting better, of this constant ascendancy of political rights and freedoms, this is a very new idea. This is not something that we've seen in many civilizations in the history of the world. I I think because so many occultists tend to say, wait, no, this is not how things work. Um, You know, these things are cyclical. Things get created, things get destroyed. Because they tend to challenge that primary narrative of, of, you know, the progress of human rights, that immediately makes them appear to be right-wing. I think in many cases, they often tend to gravitate towards right-wing ideas as well, but not in all cases. You know, I, 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 a parallel thing to this is there are, there are lots of Marxists who are now described as fascist. I have been described multiple times as a fascist. Um, because, you know, oftentimes these ideas, these ideas don't mean anything any longer. Uh, right and left mm-hmm. don't even make any sense in political terms. Or when you, when you try to, uh, you know, trans, translate them across countries. What is left-wing in the United States is actually kind of center, center rights in France, for example. 
you know? True, true. And, and so I think, you know, there, there probably, there probably is maybe a slightly larger percentage, perhaps, you know, of people who would identify with right wing political ideas. But I, I think that's more because the people doing the analysis have kind of claimed an idea of what is right and left that kind of pushes them a little bit into a, a category that they see as, you know, anti, anti-liberal, you know, um, and, you know, I'm anti-liberal as well. I'm, I'm a leftist. I'm, I'm against liberalism, but try to tell an American that and they'll say, yeah. oh, you're against liberalism or you must be a fascist. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. The categorization of our society has grown into something quite absurd. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Well, Reid, thank you so much for a very interesting and for this podcast quite unusual topic that we talked about. And um, thank you so much for your time and for being with us. Any other project than the book you mentioned that we should be on the watch out of yours? Uh, so maybe the, uh, we didn't even talk about the Académie Hérédique, maybe. Oh, quickly a, a few words about that um yeah so we teach I, I think most of your listeners probably wouldn't be interested in, in our courses specifically and they might i'm not sure we do teach courses through um god's medical class it's called academy heritage um and uh and, and i would say as far as personal projects coming up besides that book that's coming out next year from repeater press in the uk uh a collection of my own essays is coming out uh in the next month and a half or so. So if people like what I, what I write, they, they can have more of it, I guess. So good. And uh, thanks, thanks for having me. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Reed, and, um, take care and, and proceed. Me too.
Last Heaven, much softer from the 2013 album of GZT, Beautiful Deformity. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for being with us here today. And thank you for being so regulars here to listen to this show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Reed Wildermuth uh, and for his time. And I'm glad that we finally made it. It took us some time to get together, but um, most busy people and we finally made it. Once again, I will just tell you that we you should go to the website and find all those links if you're interested in getting more information not only on Reed but also on some of the people that he was speaking about and of course the website with his publishing house and his academy etc etc yeah okay on the website you'll find all of that and well that is the end of today's episode and um, now it is time to announce what is going to happen next week. Well, next week, we are going to speak about somebody who very recently only has come back a bit on the stage, on the front of the stage, um, an Italian occultist called Giuliano Cremerz. And he is especially known for type of Rosicrucian type of healing, but also recently several of his works about occultism, about magic, about practical magic have been released. And I'm going to talk to the gentleman David Pantano, as you can hear, his name is Italian, but he lives in North America. And he translated a book by an Italian writer on Kremers. The, the writer, unfortunately, already died a few years ago. And I'm not going to tell you more, but Giuliano Kremers will be the topic uh, of next week's episode, but not only him, the Italian surroundings in the in occultism of that period will be, as a matter of fact, also very present because David Pantano wrote a book about that period. We've heard something already like that by Chris Giudice uh, about a year or so ago. Um, but this is another angle, uh, especially Kremerz is somebody very particular and um, I'm sure you're going to be interested and enjoy that. Yeah, so that's for next week. And for today, well, thank you for listening once again. And have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.